Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service, a podcast series in which I sit down with some of the most inspiring minds alive, including today's very special guest, Trevor Noah, a comedian, author, and host of The Daily Show for the past seven years. Before we dive in with Trevor, I'm going to answer an email we got from Melissa from Sweden who wanted to know what some of my favorite movies are. Thank you so much for that question, Melissa. Actually, we got a lot of emails asking for my movie list, so I'm very happy to oblige. Some of my favorite movies, I mean, recently, I've just been diving back in to Pedro Almodovar movies, and I have to say, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Habla con ella, Volver, those are all some of my favorite films. I just think he's, I think he's incredible. And then, I mean, there are so many incredible movies, but I love The Florida Project. I love Rock and Roller. I love Train Spotting. I love About Time, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Lost in Translation, No Country for Old Men. Yeah, those are some of my absolute favorites. So I hope you enjoy them. Oh, and Snatch. I really like Snatch too. After a short break, join me as I introduce you to this week's At Your Service guest, Trevor Noah. Welcome back, everyone. A few months ago, I read late-night host Trevor Noah's 2016 memoir, Born a Crime, which I absolutely loved. It's a beautifully written book that chronicles his childhood in South Africa under apartheid, a dehumanizing policy of segregation and political, social, and economic discrimination against the country's non-white majority. The government here claims, with some justification, that things are changing in South Africa, that those blacks lucky enough to be allowed to live in cities are becoming better off. But all the time, this major exercise in social engineering is going on, uprooting and transplanting millions of blacks, whether they like it or not. In Soweto, 25 domestic murders a weekend were routine. Due to a constant state of police surveillance and the illegality of his parents' interracial relationship, Trevor was often hidden away in his own home. Though apartheid was repealed in the early 90s, it deeply affected Trevor's formative years and its legacy remains a powerful force in South African society. It feels strange to tell you how much I enjoyed Born a Crime considering its heavy subject matter, but I found it to be totally moving and occasionally quite funny. It was also the reason I wanted to speak to him for this week's episode. That, and of course, his time hosting The Daily Show, a position that has recently been thrust back into the spotlight. And I realized that after the seven years... Um, my time is up. I, uh, yeah, but in, 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 the most, in the most beautiful way, honestly. You know, we've, we've laughed together, we've cried together. But after seven years, I, I feel like it's time, you know. For the past seven years, Trevor has been the host of one of the most popular late-night series in the USA. Succeeding Jon Stewart, Trevor's Daily Show embodied the perfect blend of humour, warmth and empathy. His guest interviews regularly go viral because of the way he conducts his conversations, approaching each with genuine curiosity and unafraid to inject more serious moments with his trademark wit. Superstar K-pop band BTS has announced that its members will soon begin reporting for mandatory service in the South Korean military. Yeah, which is great news for South Korea. <laughs> oh, because their army is basically unstoppable now. There's no army in the world that is going to take a shot at these guys. Are you kidding me? Who's going to 
be stupid enough to take a shot. Everyone's a fan. During our conversation, you'll hear him talk about not only the powerful memoir that first drew me to his work, but his thoughts about his time on The Daily Show and what he's managed to achieve during his monumental seven-year run there. And he also gives us a glimpse of what could be next for him. Please join me in welcoming this week's At Your Service guest, Trevor Noah. Hi. Oh, yeah. It's like a recording session. Let's do this. I know. You ready to sing us a song? I'm ready to sing a song. <laughs> That's why I'm here. I'm here, to, I'm here to feature on the album. That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm in New York, just kind of wrapping up some work before I head back to London. Oh, Where how are long you are you out here for? I'm also in New York. Oh, no way. Yeah. I'm here just for the week. All and right. I head back um, Sunday night. Yeah. yeah, I spend most of my time out here. I mean, we do the show from out here, so, you know. New York's the best. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really good to see you. I feel like every time I see you, we're always like running around at some award show or something. And it's just, hey, hi. How are you doing? It really feels like that. It's like, uh, I feel like, you know, one of the greatest gifts and curses of being successful in the entertainment industry is that you get to meet some of the most interesting people in the world. But then if you're successful enough, you never get to see each other. So you see each other at an award show, you see each other at an event, and then it's a lonely but successful journey. So yeah, it's it's nice to see you like this, I guess. Yeah, for a change. it's nice to see you too and to have like a a nice proper conversation to really get to know each other. And I had the pleasure of reading your book, which I really enjoyed. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I guess I, guess I just want to start the conversation. I want to know a little bit about your early life and mm-hmm. the journey. You know, you're the host of one of the most popular late night TV shows in the world. And you also got nominated for an incredible seven Emmys. Oprah Winfrey, you know, you're doing all the podcasts and the chats. And even she said, you know, you're the only famous person that she knows that grew up poorer than she did. Mm -hmm. And I guess you went against all odds. And I'd love to hear about like your early life and growing up in South Africa and what that was like and the journey that it took for you to get to where you are now. Well, it's interesting. I, I never felt like I grew up in particularly tough circumstances. And it's because I grew up in a world where many people were living the way I was. You know, in South Africa, during apartheid and then post-apartheid, before democracy and then after democracy, I found that I was just one of the kids. We all lived in the township and most of us lived in a multifamily household. Most of us didn't have like a wall at the front of the house and most people didn't have a car and there was no backyard, there was no pool, none of these things existed. It was an idea, you know, we're playing in the streets. Most of the streets were dirt, but I never felt like I was suffering because it was ubiquitous. It was what everyone was going through. I do remember having a lot of fun. I do remember having great friends. I do remember laughing a lot, uh, running around a lot, breaking things, getting into trouble. But yeah, it's really interesting to look back at your life through the lens of where you may be today because I think it does one of two things. On the one hand, it gives me perspective and it also gives me gratitude because I think the way the human brain works, you know, the hedonic treadmill always makes us readjust our priorities. What's the new problem? What's the new idea? What's the new thing that I'm going through? And as soon as we solve that, we then want to go to the next problem. Oftentimes, Mm -hmm. we don't take a moment to appreciate the fact that we've just overcome a giant hurdle. And so when I look back, I'll see my like my grandmother's house that we all lived in. Every time I'd go back to it, it always seemed bigger in my brain. Can so and say funny. to my grand, like, how did we live here? Yeah. We all lived here. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yeah, how you remember things as a child yeah. is, is really, it's so interesting. Also, I think it's a testament to your mother. And I, I think there's sometimes to, you know, my parents is everything that they went through in life. My parents were refugees and they moved from mm-hmm, Kosovo mm-hmm. to London. They were working multiple jobs. They were trying to study to get an education at the same time and never made me feel like I was missing out from anything that the other kids wow. had. Yeah. And now looking back, I was like, okay, we had a very different circumstance. But I think as a child, you just kind of see things differently that now as an adult, when you look back, it's um, mm-hmm. it's a very different outlook. Mm-hmm. In your memoir, Born a Crime, that was one of like the clearest depictions of life under apartheid that I've ever read. And after reading it, I felt like I really understood the horror of the system. Mm. And it was a very carefully designed system that you have described so poignantly. And tell me why you decided to call it Born a Crime. It's actually funny. The reason the book got that title is because of a story that I was telling to a, a friend of mine who's a comedian by the name of Eddie Azard. I was doing some shows in Edinburgh, Scotland, And we were chatting about our lives, you know, comedy, life, uh, how we came to be, who we were. And I had to basically break down the way I had grown up, how I had lived, and why I had to live the way that I did. So apartheid was a system of laws in South Africa that basically dictated how people lived their lives based on the color of their skin and based on their tribal affiliations. You know, everything, everything in your life was defined by color of your skin. And it it dictated everything, like even how you were treated in prison, you'd get different food. If you were black, white, Indian, Asian, whatever it may be, everything was divided Mm -hmm. up. You know, you had different jobs that were afforded to you. You had different neighborhoods that you could live in. And so this was particularly weird for me growing up because my mother's a black woman, Hossa woman from South Africa, right? And then my father's Swiss from Switzerland, a white man. So, you know, they broke the law being together. There was called the law of miscegenation, I believe. And this was a law that forbade anybody of different races from intermingling and you'd get arrested if you did. My mom got arrested a few times, you know, for doing it. And Eddie said, I don't understand. So if this was illegal, then what does that mean for you? And and I said to Eddie, I was like, well, I was born a crime. And that was the first time I, I remember saying that. Like my mom had to lie on my birth certificate when they asked her who my dad was. She just like made up a person, but it was, she was more like, oh yeah, he's he's from Swaziland. And that, I guess, explains why his skin is lighter than hers. I grew up in a world where, if you can imagine it, according to the law in the country, I was superior to my mother. She was inferior to me. But then my dad was superior to both of us. And then I technically couldn't live with my mom. And I also couldn't live with my dad. You know, so my grand would always tell me stories of how she was always terrified that the police would discover me at her house and they would take me away to an orphanage to be raised as what they call in South Africa, a colored child. So it was really tough for people. And I always tell people it was tougher for my family. It was tougher for the generation before me because that was their life for most of their life. I was six years old when apartheid ended and I was 10 when we had our first democratic election. So yeah, I knew a few things were strange. I knew we didn't go certain places. I knew my mom would dress a certain way. Like, you know, she would act like she was my you know, my my nanny. But I didn't think of this as a kid. I just thought my mom had weird fashion. That was it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, it's really amazing how, to what you were saying with your parents, my mom didn't make me feel like I was being oppressed. My mom didn't make me feel what was actually happening in the country. And 
had it not changed when I got older, obviously I would have now realized the environment I was growing up in. But I think she did a magical job of giving me the most normal childhood experience that someone possibly could. That's amazing. I mean, it's unbelievable hearing some of the stories and and the separation that was happening in South Africa at that time. And I also listened to your podcast with Oprah. And like I said, I read the book, but the fact, you know, your grandmother had to hide you under the bed Mm -hmm. and you had no idea what that was about. You were like, oh, this is a fun game. game." (laughs) (laughs) It just shows kind of a, a child's innocence in that. And, you know, I guess your family did a really, really good job at protecting that, which is a a true testament to them. Yeah, well, every, it's in, funny. Everything I read, in, yeah. you know, from your story as well, is it's parents who understand the situation they're in. You know, I, I don't know if you had a similar experience where you know the world your family comes from and it's a part of you, but they also give you access to a whole different opportunity, whether it's because of how they move or because of how they work or what they do. It just, you, you know, I, I don't know if you experienced it in, in a similar way. Absolutely. I mean, just the idea of like, and, and my parents always go, oh, you'll never find out until you become a parent yourself, or whatever, what it's like to want your child to essentially have things that you couldn't have. Yeah. And, you know, when I moved back to Kosovo at the age of 11, that's when I really kind of started to understand the implications of war. Like I always knew Damn. about it in some loose way because I was so, so young. But it was when I lived there and I kind of saw the real effects it had on people and then, you know, the friends that I made there and I started understanding the the stories. And then I started to kind of feel the trauma that also my parents went through. It's, it, it's a very interesting mm-hmm. experience. We'll be back with Trevor Noah right after this short break. In your memoir, Born a Crime, you talk about how you discovered early on in life that having a quick wit and being an incredible mimic could save you in difficult situations. And it strikes me that this is a gift that you kind of used as a survival strategy in the beginning. Mm, yeah. um, and now it's evolved into a career. When did you realize that you could harness that gift to really make something of yourself? Oh, wow. I, I don't know when the exact moment was, but I know my whole life I've tried to learn other languages. I've tried to speak the way other people do. I've tried to mimic their voices because we have so many different accents in South Africa. As a little kid, I wanted to fit in, you know? So I'd, I'd meet mm. other kids and I'd meet other people who speak a certain way. And subconsciously, I go like, oh, if I, if I sound like them, I can be like them. And then what happens is over time, you migrate that thinking to language, you know? And then as more time passes, you start migrating that to like mimicking actual people. And so my mom hates it because I'll, I'll do a pretty good job of mimicking her. And uh, <laughs> like, like in the house, sometimes what I would do is I would, she would like call people. She has a very, very musical way of speaking, my mom. You know, so like whenever she'd call me or something, she'd be like, let's say I'm across the house. And she'd be like, Trevor, you know, like that, that's like, it's always like a rhythmic thing. And she'd be like, Trevor. And then I would sometimes do it back to her in the house or I'd call other people. You know, she'd be like, Trevor. And then I'd be like, Trevor. She gets <laughs> furious and she'd be like, she'd like, are you mocking me? I'd be like, I, didn't, I don't know what you're talking about. It was an echo. I, I just loved it. And you are right. It was a tool in many ways. Like I remember the bullies in school. I would mimic them mm. and then they would laugh, but they wouldn't know why they were laughing. And everyone else would laugh around them. And then they didn't want to give away that they didn't know the joke. So they would just, you know, they'd laugh along. Join and, in. Yeah. Smart. And, and so it's something that I definitely developed as a tool. 
And then it just makes me laugh by myself, you know, in a corner. I'll just, if, if I hear someone that speaks a certain way, I, I always, I listen to the musicality of voices and I, I find myself trying to mimic that. I find it, uh, yeah, it's quite entertaining. In your book, you know, you say that you've learned five different languages. I thought that mm-hmm. was so incredibly impressive and the idea of trying to fit in, but, you know, being like, I look different, but if I sound the same, then I am you. And I thought that was so interesting also just in the grand scheme of the world as well you know knowing so many different languages being able to connect with people in different ways is such a such a beautiful thing as mm-hmm. well because there is a sense of like community and togetherness and that as well that I um I really loved and I was just really impressed by it oh thank you um, thank you did your wit ever get you in trouble I think the correct question is when did your wit not get you in trouble we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll spend less time on that Man, I am, there are a few better ways to describe me than, you know, he was just like a little shit. I was always in trouble. I'm probably still always in trouble. It's just, I guess now I can pay my own rent. Um, (laughs) It's funny. I met a woman who I went to school with, obviously as a girl, and she came up to me and it was the South African um, Heritage Day celebration. And she comes up to me. She's like, Trevor, do you remember me? And I'm like, Jane? She's like, yes, it's me, Jane. And she looks at her family and she's like, Nambon, Nambon, Trevor, Nambon. Then she's like, this is the guy that always got me kicked out of class. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. What have you been telling your family? And she's like, you always used to make jokes and I would get kicked out of class, Trevor. And because of you, I was always kicked out. And I was like, no, you laughed. That's why you got kicked out. I didn't get you kicked out. I said things that you laughed and that you responded to. But I guess this has always just been me. I, you know, I'm I didn't even remember that, 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 you know, how much I did it in school. My mom still says I do it too much. I've been in terrible situations where I still find a reason to laugh. Oftentimes at the wrong time. And I always try and explain to people, it's not that I don't think anything is serious. It's that even in the most serious situation, I can find something funny. And it makes life a lot more bearable. It reminds me that not everything is as morose as, you know, sometimes the world will have you feel. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, pain and comedy, because I feel like you really (laughs) intertwine that well in your book. And, you know, you're talking about very difficult subjects, like apartheid and Mm -hmm. also domestic Mm -hmm. violence, but there's a lot of lightness and humor in it. I'm wondering, in the current climate, do you ever find yourself self-censoring on how far you take a joke? Well, I don't even think of it as censoring. I think of it as remembering and acknowledging context or lack thereof. I see a lot of people say, oh, the world has become more sensitive and the world has become more this. And everyone wants to fight about it. At the core of it all, context is the very bedrock of comedy. The only reason you find something funny is because of the context through which you are looking at it. You and your friends will laugh about something that nobody else will find funny because you all share a context. One of the greatest gifts and one of the most wonderful things we received from social media and television that goes globally is that we get to experience people from all over the world. The one downside that nobody prepared us for is that we lose the context of how those people came to be and why they came to be. I mean, you know this as somebody growing up in the UK. There are words that you'd say in the UK that means something completely different when you're traveling on the other side of the world. Mm. Literally, the word, the word doesn't mean anything bad. That's just what somebody says. It just doesn't translate the same way. So right? with, with, with that, what I'm always trying to remember, and I can never be perfect, nor do I try to be, is that there is context. And so what I spend more time doing now is providing the context behind my humor 
so that somebody can understand why I think something is or isn't funny. I think that can help a lot of us in life, by the way, is understanding that sometimes the reason you're offended, sometimes the reason you're hurt is not because something was intended to hurt you, not because something was directed at you, but rather because you may not understand the context. You know, if you take comedy out of a comedy club, it immediately loses some of its context. So now someone watches a clip from a comedy club or a comedy show and they go, oh, I'm offended. It's like, you may be because you weren't in the comedy club. You know, if, if people run around yeah. boxing each other, oh, well, that's assault. But if they do it and there's four ropes around them and a spongy ring, now it's boxing. The context is there. You know, if someone runs around cutting people open, they're probably like a serial killer. If they do it with a mask and they're wearing a white coat and they're in a hospital, oh, that's a doctor. Context is everything. Mm. So that's all I think we always have to be cognizant of is the context of what it means and why it means that. Like in music, I'm sure you experience it as well. You know, you'll have to change a lyric here or there because a different place you go to has a different idea of what the context is. You, I don't know if you come across that at all, but I know some artists have learned a line that they said in a certain country has a different context and all of a sudden, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, I, I just, I guess I've never heard it put in that way, but it makes, it makes perfect sense. And you are very, you know, obviously very funny, but there's, it, your humor has, um, it's, it's very analytical. And um, I think that's also a, a big reason why people gravitate to you because I think you also supply that context underneath all the funny jokes. I try to, <laughs> I, I, you know. I feel like I've met a few comedians and I, I feel like something that you all have in common is really that comedy can really act as a form of therapy. Mm. And I know that you've spoken out about your own struggles with depression, which you've said is created by a severe level of ADHD. And I guess ADHD can take on many different forms, but how does it affect you and what are your coping mechanisms? And have you been able to create like a good support system around yourself? Oh, definitely. You know, one of the first things I learned that helps me is just understanding. One of my favorite experiences in life is going to any type of physical therapist or person who deals with the human body because they will teach you that sometimes a pain that you have in your neck is being caused by the way your foot strikes the ground when you walk. Oftentimes in life, we think our neck is sore, which means we have to change something in our neck and we have to massage something and crack something. And But you find your neck is acting that way because your back is misaligned and your back is misaligned mm -hmm. because your hips are, are not in the right place and your hips aren't because right. your knees and your knee, and it goes all the way down to your feet. I think the same thing applies to mental health. We do a terrible job in how we speak about it in society. I think there's a shorthand that people have used understandably that creates a misnomer about what a thing is or isn't. And so immediately people are on the back foot, you know, you say you mental health and some people are like, wait, 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 you saying I've got something wrong with me? Nobody wants to have something wrong with them. Nobody wants to be labeled mm -hmm. as having something wrong. What I was, you know, struggled with when I was a kid is when school told me I had to go to a therapist and the therapist said I had ADHD. You know, my mom was defensive. I was defensive. I was like, what does that mean? You know, of course I have ADHD. Right. I'm a kid. But then you start to learn how these things affect you. You also start to understand that it's just a measure of something that exists beyond or outside of what we deem the norm. Once you understand that, then it helps you deal with it. You know, like in singing as a silly example, if you are a soprano, it's not good or bad. It's just understanding where your voice rests. You know, this is generally going to be your range. And so this is how you want to use your voice. 
Now, if you sing out of that range, things may get uncomfortable for you and you may struggle and you know you may hurt your voice, whatever it may be, but this is generally your range. And so I think that happens with the brain as well. We're still in the infancy of communicating to people what their brain is. And so I think we've, we've, we've made a huge mistake in telling people that their brain is wrong instead of just saying to people what kind of brain they have, you know? And so if anybody's brain does not match the society that their brain exists within, then all of a sudden they have a problem. And so what really helped me in learning about ADHD was first what it is, how it presents itself, and then understanding, you know, how depression can be a symptom of that. You know, everyone talks about depression and a lot of the time people make it seem like, oh, you have depression. It means you're sad. Oh, I'm sad. Oh, it's, you know what I mean? But it's like, no, it's not, it's not like sad. Sad is like what you experience, you know, living in the UK because of the weather. That's like sad. You know, depression, <laughs> depression is more, is more, hey, a, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> it's more, it's more states of being sometimes that can be caused by a chemical imbalance. It can be caused by an emotional loop in your brain. It can be caused by a narrative, whatever it may be. Oftentimes, it, you know, depression itself can be a byproduct of something. And so what helped me was just learning, learning why my brain works the way it does learning why it gives me, you know, what I like to call superpowers, and then learning why it makes certain tasks more difficult. And in doing that, it's allowed me to live a fuller life. Yeah, I think a big lesson to take from that is just learning to lead with empathy and also learn to accept every mm. part of yourself in whatever way you are. I think also the labeling doesn't help so much, especially in this age of you know, the internet, because everyone's like, oh, well, I probably have this. And if I'm feeling this, yeah. then I probably have that. And right. everyone's self-diagnosing and people are diagnosing each other. And I think that can also be quite um, overwhelming. But I'm happy to hear that you've like figured out a way that you have, you know, that support system that has helped you navigate through life. And you've been accepting also of yourself. Oh, definitely. That's, yeah. That's really important. I keep going back to your book. I really, really enjoyed your book. I had, <laughs> I had a really you. great time reading it. And there are so many iterations of Trevor. You know, you're the comedian, the DJ, the street hustler, <laughs> the, you know, the dancer. There was a lot of dimensions to you. And, you know, now you're a stand-up comedian and you're the host of one of the biggest top-rated late-night TV shows on the fucking planet so you know and your world doesn't just live on tv you know i mm -hmm. i see your monologues on tiktok all the time and i feel like there's so much digital output what's it like to host the daily show you know it's funny you say the word iterations because i feel like that would best describe what it's like it depends on which iteration we're speaking about what is it like to host the daily show when you first taken it over it's extremely stressful it is debilitating at times, it is terrifying, it is a world where most people don't want you to succeed, it's a grueling environment to be in, and understandably, you know, I don't even say it from the place of like, oh, feel sorry for me, it's just like, well, no, it was a hell of a ride. I do love and challenges, you didn't accept, though. You didn't accept yeah. the job to begin with, <laughs> when it first kind of no, came I didn't. to you. No, I didn't. You first, you were like, I'm not going to give up the stand-up, no. you know, touring life. No, I love the I still well. love I still love the touring life. So what happened was John Stewart called me. It's so wild because I remember exactly where I was. So I was in I was in Harrods in London for the first time in my life. And I just put together my first UK tour. 
And I had shows everywhere, you know, like Battersea and Brighton and Newcastle and Manchester. And, and here I was now in London and I was so excited. And I was standing in Harrods. Someone had told me, they're like, you should go to Harrods. You know, they're like, have you been to Harrods? You have to go. I've never seen anything like it, Trevor. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, I've got to go to Harrods. <laughs> and, and I went and I remember I was standing in front of, uh, it was an underwater scooter mobile thing that you could just ride like a little motorbike underwater. And I was just staring at this thing, just enthralled. I was like, what is this? And who came up with it and who's buying it? And, all? and my phone rang and it was John Stewart. And I didn't know him at the time. And, uh, he, you know, he came on the phone. He's like, hi, Trevor. Um, it was a random number, first of all. So I was like, oh, who is this? It's going to be spam. You know, I was like, hey, is this Trevor? I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, hey, I'm, you're speaking to John Stewart. I was like, all right. So he's like, do you know who I am? I was like, no, not really. He's like, oh, nor should you. And he's very funny, by the way. He was like, well, nor should you. He's like, nobody knows who I am. And, and you know, he like giggled about it. And he's like, well, I work on a little show called The Daily Show. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know The Daily Show. And he's like, as you should, young man, as you should. And, and he laughed again. <laughs> and immediately I was like, this guy's a really weird dude. And he was very funny. And we got into a conversation and um, he said he liked... Um, some of my comedy that he had seen online and he wanted me to come in and join The Daily Show. And I was really flattered and I said, thank you very much. But, you know, right now the answer would be no. And he said, I'm sorry, are you saying no? And I said, yeah. And he said, you do understand I'm inviting you to be on American television. And, you know, and he's, he was really taking the piss while saying these things, but he was being sincere at the same time. And I said, yeah, I really appreciate this, but I've just, for the first time, put together an international tour and I'm loving it and I'm so grateful to these fans. And like, you know what it's like, you know, when mm. you have that first show and you know, you're opening this venue and then you're moving it. It's such a gradual process. Everyone knows you when the blow up happens, but it's when you're doing that one show and you're having that one moment and, and you're performing. I remember when you performed, uh, I feel like I saw you, were you in Ukraine maybe? I think, where were you? Yeah, I did. Uh, that's so funny. I was talking about that today. You did the, um, you did the, Champions, the Champions League, League. final. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. I remember I was in Ukraine and then I saw you there. And I remember you came on to perform and it was so weird. And, you know, people were, I remember there were people who were like, who the hell is that? And I was like, it's Dua Lipa. That's Dua Lipa, you know? <laughs> and it's like all these like old men who've come to watch like a football game, <laughs> football match. Yeah, and, it's And they're just it's like, who is this collab, person? That. And then now there's like no one in the world who doesn't know you. And I, I think... That journey is what a lot of people don't know about is how gradual and incremental mm. that's, you know, that process is. And so I wasn't ready to give that up. And then, you know, now, you know, you skip to, it seems like it's all I've ever done, you know, and it's still grueling. It's still difficult, you know, and politics is a very sensitive issue, which I always acknowledge. But I also think the more we talk about things, the better chance we have in society of even trying to fix anything. I, I think we've lost the ability to have arguments as friends. And that's something I encourage people to do. So that's constantly what I'm doing on my show. I argue with myself. I argue with my colleagues. I argue with my audience. And and the point is for us to try and engage in critical thoughts so that we're, you know, yes. we're just constantly living in a space where we're trying to think about the world that we're in. Yeah, to really, really get into and, and get stuck in and start a conversation that has some real meaning. I guess now you've been on The Daily Show for about seven years. Do you it have any been. favorite moments or guests that you've had on the show or any that you'd like to forget? <laughs> That's a good one. That would be great if I just started slamming all of them now. Oh, do a leave. Let me tell you something. Oh, I <laughs> That would be so cool. I've had, I've had a lot of fun moments. I mean, some because of, of how, just of how monumental they were in my life. 
you know, like interviewing President Barack Obama in the White House. This is wild. There was a moment where I was, I was sitting Crazy. in the White House. It's like a random kid from South, from South Africa who makes jokes. And now I'm waiting for the president of the United States so that I can speak to him, you know? And then he just strolls in with all his swag. And he's, you know, he's like, uh, Trevor, uh, good to see you, everybody. How you doing, everybody? Uh, good to see you. <laughs> I hope you won't wait long. And it's like, oh no! So even if you were, I'm the president. So that's what you do. You wait. And, you, and now you here you are. You like laughing and bantering with the president. And and then there are moments that just touch you. There are moments that stick with you. Stories that people share. You know, talking to somebody amazing like Malala. You know, people like Greta Thunberg, who you know, despite all the bullying and all the trash talking, uh, just persevered and carried on doing what she was trying to do. You, you speak to people who've changed the world. And then you speak to people who make you laugh. You speak to people who, who create some of your favorite content, whether it's movies or, you know, it's been a wonderful experience that I, I find myself constantly having to remind myself to be grateful for. Because if you're not careful in life, you can often see everything as a given once you've experienced it for too long. And so I oftentimes have to just pause and go like, man, this part of it has been crazy you know, and, and, and funny enough, it's never the fame side for me. It's just more what the show has brought into my life, the conversations, the stimulation, the inspiration, and, and the challenge, I would say. Yeah, I guess it's brought a lot of good things into your life and a lot of experiences. And I, I also think you do a really good job at giving back to people and, and to the community as well. And, and oh, thank you. I know in 2018, you created your own foundation, the Trevor Noah Foundation, which helps provide equal education opportunities in South Africa, including for undocumented children as well, which I think is a really, really wonderful initiative. What kind of impact do you feel the foundation has had so far? And what are your future ambitions for it? There are a few things that are more humbling than working in philanthropy, because you realize how impotent you really are in trying to solve a problem. You know, when I started my foundation, I thought I could solve the world's problems overnight. What I've come to enjoy more and more is appreciating what the foundation does on a daily basis. And there's a wonderful friend of mine who runs it. Her name is Shalane. And she's really helped me find the most effective ways and the most effective spaces to use resources that I have to help kids who have nothing. When I look at my life, all of the moments that changed the trajectory of my family forever are moments that included education, how my grandfather was educated, how my grandmother was, how my mother was educated, and then how I was. Those are all turning points in our family's history. And so I knew that education would always be something that would have an outsized influence on somebody's life. So what we do is we try and take on all aspects of, of how a child's education can be improved. So we find schools in South Africa that are under-resourced. We try and build the resources that they need to sustain themselves. So whether it be building classrooms, giving them computer labs, you know, like Microsoft will help us with that. We'll build out school halls. Sometimes the schools then become used as community centers. So adults come in in the evenings and they start setting up businesses and they hold meetings and it becomes literally a community hub. We'll hire workers from a community in South Africa to rebuild the school that is in their community. So it's almost like parents, kids, uncles, children, everybody just going, you know, together to try and move something forward. We also try and understand which curriculum helps children in which way. So one of the biggest programs we've been proud to introduce to schools 
has been psychosomatic support. We've understood how just having somebody to talk to can change a child's life. We often think in life that our job is to fix everything, and you'll be surprised at how often people just want you to listen and for them to know that there is somebody to speak to. Yes, you still want to fix the problem, but you'll be surprised at how much therapy is just giving people a safe space to be in when they express their thoughts and their feelings. And we've seen children's grades dramatically increase or improve because they now have that support. So we provide teacher training, infrastructural support for schools. We then help, as I said, with psychosomatic support for the children. And then we help get them into apprenticeships with companies because a lot of the time people are taught that the only thing that will change their lives is further education when, in fact, most people will have a better life if they just start working and earning a living. That's what I did. I could never afford university, but I got an opportunity to work and I've been working ever since. And so that's that's what I've been doing with the foundation. And I grow it slowly. You know, I use mostly my own money, which means I, I pay attention to what we're doing and make sure we're doing it properly. And yeah, it's been a blessing for me to be able to give. So wonderful. I was, I was just saying, just hearing you talk about it shows just how passionate you really are about it. And I can imagine it has a really positive impact on your life, all the incredible work that you're doing. So, Oh, definitely. Um, it's really amazing. We'll be back with Trevor Noah right after this break. Finally, I guess I have to ask, what does the future look like for you? You know, are there any mountains left to climb in Trevor Noah's world? Um, let me think. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, most of my mountains, I feel, are still internal. I've truly enjoyed how liberating it has been to explore therapy, to you know, work on myself as a human being. Oftentimes, we don't have the luxury of time nor the resources to engage in it. But if you do, wow, do it. It changes everything for you, you know? That's one of the mountains I, I would enjoy climbing, and I still do. I've loved getting involved in filmmaking, you know, so I have a production company, and, you know, we produce everything from, like, kids' shows for Nickelodeon. You know, I'll do the, the Time Kid of the Year awards, which is really fun, you know, and then I get to work on, you know, like, blockbuster movies as well, and, you know, get to work on writing. Um, maybe in time, I'll step into the world of being you know, behind the camera in that way. But for now, I'm focused on getting back on the road. The pandemic was a little hard on me, I won't lie, emotionally. You know, I know I was in a privileged position, but but man, I, I missed being with the people. I missed going to a country. It's difficult two years. Yeah, sure. learning the cultures, understanding the languages, trying to create comedy for them. That's That's like the essence of who I am. That's really what I love doing. And so that's what I'm excited to get back to, is going back on a world tour, and just learning about this giant, beautiful world that we live in. I'm a proud idiot. And so I'm never ashamed to say that I have more to learn. I absolutely love that. And I second that. I think that's um, definitely a big, big part of life, just staying curious and always having more to learn. Trevor, thank you so much for your time. I might have thank to you. make a compilation of all the accents that you did for <laughs> us today. Um, <laughs> that was something I thoroughly enjoyed. But thank you. Thank you. It's really been such a pleasure. I, I like to end my conversations by asking my guests for some 
recommendation lists. Mm, um, okay. And I have two lists that I would like to ask you for. Okay. The first being five best stand-up specials that you think we should all watch. Oh boy, that's a really tough one. <laughs> I would say Eddie Izzard is still one of my favorites of all time. If you can watch any of Eddie Izzard's stuff, go and watch it. An Australian comedian by the name of Kitty Flanagan is one of my all-time favorites as well. I think she's phenomenal. Ronnie Chang, who I work with here on The Daily Show, is also one of my favorite comedians. I really loved Richard Pryor's Live at the Sunset Strip. That was, that was, I mean, that's one of the most timeless classics. And then one of mine, you should just watch one of mine. I'm going to be selfish and throw one of mine in. <laughs> I think I've made some pretty good stuff. It's been a while since yes, I made one because of the I pandemic, but I'll, I'll throw one of mine in there. Shameless promo, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that that's my five. That's the five that I'll throw in. Amazing. Thank you so much. And the final list is five up and coming comedians that you'd like to spotlight. So this is an interesting one. You know what I would actually tell people? Because comedy is so big and yet so small, the way I would answer this question is rather go and watch comedy at a venue near you. You know, most comedians, let's say in America, they only knew about comedians in America. They'd only recommend comedians in America. And I understand that. I don't even hold that against mm. anybody. In South Africa, I knew South African comedians. But what I learned is the venues are the heart and soul of stand-up comedy. The only reason I got the opportunities that I did in many ways is because of the venues. You know, it was the comedy store when I was in London. That was one of the reasons I got to perform and meet Eddie Izzard and meet so many great comedians like Andrew Maxwell and... It's just like fantastic minds who I've been lucky enough to share a stage with in New York, places like the Comedy Cellar, places like The Stand, in South Africa, places like Parker's or, you know, any of the other comedy clubs that will come up and go, you know, like the Goliath's Comedy Club. Um, in LA, you know, the Ice House and the Comedy and Magic Club, a phenomenal, phenomenal club where you'll get to see comedians. Like I remember performing there and then one day Jay Leno would walk in and, and then you'd see you know, Howie Mandel walk in. And, and so in a, in a weird way, I would say to people, find those comedy clubs because you'll find the Trevor Noah of today, the Trevor Noah of tomorrow, the Trevor Noah of yesterday. You'll just find the comedian for you. And so that's all I would encourage people to do is it's a fun night out. Go with your friends. Don't worry about who's there. Just trust the club. Go to the place. You'll have a great time. And even if you don't enjoy anybody, you're still going to have a fun night. Trust it's me. It's still going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the yeah. weird thing about comedy is when it's terrible, it's still good, which is, a, which is not something you could say about most <laughs> other art forms. So uh, yeah, just, just go out there and support the clubs and, and you'll find the comedians for you. I love that. Trevor, thank you so, so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and getting to know you a little bit more beyond the book as well. And thank you so much. Like I will, I will see you Backstage at the next... Backstage run-ins Yeah, I'll see you well. at the next... I, I even said to my, my friend one day, I said, every time I see Dua Lipa, it's at an award show. So now that means if I see her, my life is going well. So now I just hope to see her more. To, <laughs> so that it means my life is still going <laughs> exceptionally well. So um, thank you for... You've always been really wonderful and gracious and you've always been a, a really wonderful light, just like in the spaces that everybody's in. So, so thank you for taking the time. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening. And thanks to the extremely funny and thoughtful Trevor Noah for joining me on this week's At Your Service. 
Honestly, we feel so lucky that our chat is the last interview he gave before announcing his daily show departure later that week. When I listened back to this conversation with the announcement in mind, it's really given new meaning to the way he reflected upon his time there. And I'm just so excited to see what comes next for him. You can find the list of Trevor's favourite comedy sets to watch in this week's issue of Service 95, our free newsletter available to subscribers via service95.com. This week's issue also includes a powerful long read on the protests currently happening in Iran, as well as a profile on a restaurant in the Philippines that serves mood-altering food. Make sure you're subscribed to get the issue in full in your inbox. And please keep writing in with the lists you'd like me to read aloud during next week's episode. We've received so many already, and I love knowing what you're hungry for. Email us at podcast at service95.com. I can't wait to see what you come up with. Sending you all my love and gratitude, and I hope to see you again next week for another very special episode of Dua Lipa at your service.